The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. This podcast is presented in front of a live Astadio audience. Hey, hey, it's Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. You can find Midwest Swing on Twitter at Midwest Swing Pod and Zone Coverage at Zone Coverage at Man. I'm your host, Brandon Warren. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. And across the table from me is producer Justin. He is just kind of hanging out today. No Tom Schreier. We've got Justin, though, back from South by Southwest. He'll be making sure we got all our levels correct and all set up. Before we get to today's guest, thank you so much for your reviews on whatever platform you're on. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Libsyn, Spotify. Five-star reviews help us with the advertisers and listeners, moves us up the charts. So again, give us five stars if you like the show. Reach out on Twitter if you don't. Let us know what we can do differently. Otherwise, just slide into those DMs and let me know. Now, today's guest, you will most likely remember him from his time with the New York Yankees is his former outfielder, Slade Heathcott. You can find him on Twitter at Heathcott underscore Slade. How's it going today, man? Oh, man, I woke up breathing and I'm still breathing. So everything else is icing on top. Where are we catching you at? What uh, are you in Florida right now? I am. I'm in Tampa, so I'm actually uh, over. At, I'm actually in St. Pete. I do all my flying out of St. Pete International or St. Pete Clearwater International. So I, I'm at, over near the airport. So we'll be jumping into that here in a minute. But since you're not playing baseball anymore, people will find out very quickly that you've turned your attention to flying. I, I kind of want to back up a little bit before we get to that. I listened to an appearance you did with Sweeney Murdy on Murdy for 30 here uh, earlier this spring. Really good podcast to episode and obviously Sweeney is one of the better reporters out in New York but uh, I have to I have to assume you enjoyed doing that with him I do I've uh I've grown a pretty strong relationship with Sweeney over the years and somebody that uh especially in this profession and being in New York somebody that I have a lot of respect for so it was good catching back up with him and look forward to plenty more so Let's go back to your childhood for just a little bit. Um, I personally had kind of a difficult upbringing, and I was reading through some of yours, so there were some similarities. But ultimately, I read that you lived your senior year out of your truck. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I lived uh, part of my junior year kind of bouncing around with friends and kind of living on my own a little bit out of my car. And then my senior year, probably for – over half the year, I actually lived out of my truck, and wow. I honestly did it by choice. It, uh, the baseball field was like my escape. It was somewhere I could go that I didn't have anybody bothering me and, you know, kind of nobody overbearing or telling me what I need to do and what I don't need to do. So uh, I guess I was living the uh, what I thought was the young adult life. What did that do for you maturity-wise? Because, I mean, maybe people you don't want to say people have to go through struggles to be mature, but – in a lot of ways, I had to grow up fast because I was the oldest of seven kids. And my stepdad died when I was real little. But I feel like you probably had to mature, be, become more mature than maybe kids your age around that time. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things I don't agree with in society today is we, we shield children and young adults from failure. And I, and I, I think that's a detriment to our society. I think mm-hmm. it's detriment to who we are as individuals because um, you know, weather and storms that we face shape us into who we need to be and, and teach us life lessons and teach us how to stand back up. That's one of the most valuable things you can do in life is just get back up because uh, life's going to hit you hard. And and most of us are aware of that. And, we, you know, we all have individual paths and we all have unique paths and we have, you know, bad upbringings and good upbringings. And I think we all have 
each our own place in society and how we can influence and impact lives. So you also played football, I saw. Was it ever a difficult choice between football and baseball for you? Um, I really enjoyed football. Football is like my mentality. Yeah, I <laughs> so kind of thought just, so. Just, uh, you know, if you get mad, just go hit somebody and, and things of that nature. But I, I was pretty sure that that baseball was, you know, kind of the path I was going to go down after my junior summer and playing in Dallas with D-Bat. I, I was pretty sure that baseball was going to be my path. I definitely look forward to being a two-way guy at LSU. Mm-hmm. But, you know, obviously with where I got selected and things of that nature, that wasn't the course and um, the rest is history. What was your baseball playing experience like as a kid? I mean, I started playing organized when I was 12, but I played in the yard from like age six and up. But I definitely didn't play affiliated stuff until I was older. Did you start really young or did you kind of, you know, come around late? Usually with guys that your talent level have been playing for a very long time. Yeah, I, uh, from four on. Uh, wow. I, I, w- I started school in Louisiana at four and a half for mm-hmm. preschool. So uh, I was playing t-ball at that age, and I played multi-sports. Uh, I never was just one sport. I played a lot of soccer, a little bit of basketball. I wrestled a good majority of my life, which I contribute to, you know, giving me the ability to push through a lot of adversities and kind of establishing the base for mental toughness that kind of formed later on in life. Um but yeah, I can play ever since I can remember. When did it become a reality that you could be a first round pick? I remember the day exactly. I was actually at an ex-girlfriend's house that I was dating. Um, and I think at that time I was actually living with her family. Mm-hmm. But I remember sitting in there like then uh, my agent had called and told me to figure that he was thinking and I can't really repeat what I thought in my head. But <laughs> I believe let's you. just say it was... Let's say it was the R-rated version of, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's not happening. So you go in the first round, you go to the Yankees. I mean, first and foremost, what did it mean then to be a Yankee? What did it mean when you got to the big leagues as a Yankee? Because I feel like there's that stigma of Babe Ruth and, you know, the, the, the cornerstone franchise of the league. What did it mean and how did that evolve to you to become a Yankee and, and go through that process? I think it really shaped me just seeing the guys, um, you know, just, just learning on a daily basis from the players and the caliber of guys that were in those locker rooms throughout my upbringing with the Yankees. You know, you're, you're talking about Pettit and Jeter and Mariano Rivera and Carlos Beltran, Alex Rodriguez, uh, Brett Gar. I mean, you can just keep going. Brian McCann, um, CeCe Sabathia, Dylan Batanzas, it's unbelievable that that clubhouse and and the upbringing that I got around. Um, And I I think it honestly helped me more so off the field and being uh, the man I am today more so than even just on the field. But I'm also a very firm believer that when we are the best individuals we can be off the field, then we're going to be the best uh, players we can be on the field. So, um, you know, it, it really meant a lot, you know, starting in center field that, that my debut was in Washington, DC, but mm-hmm. I obviously, I, uh, nothing against that day and nothing against that opportunity, but I just was very, uh, the next day starting in center field was my debut and hearing uh roll call with CC on the mound. Those are moments that you only dream of as a kid. And, uh, you know, I think that was one of the first or final straws really that I knew that I wanted my life to be dedicated to making dreams, um, 
not only a reality, but just creating the opportunity for dreams to become a reality. No, let's pretend we have a time machine. What would your age 28 self say to your age 18 self? Keep living the exact same path you're living. Because when you turn 28, you're going to have learned three years prior that this life and this world is way too complicated to be anything other than just who you are right now. And, you know, I, I really wouldn't change a thing. I think every surgery and every decision that was thought to be poor or bad, I think it formed me in exactly who I am today. And it took me 25 years and several life lessons to learn that, you know, it starts with square one by looking in the mirror, no, no matter how cliche that might sound. Um, you know, we, we just have to be able to be, if we want to love others, we have to be able to love ourselves. And I think it took a very long time for that. I lived a good majority of my life as a negative influence mm-hmm. and um, made a lot of decisions that were thought to be poor, but I wouldn't change any of them. Um, so I would just tell myself to follow my heart. I think it's some of the best things that we can do in life is, and, you know, be able to stand back up, like I said, and take the trials that life throws at us and kind of build that fortitude to stay true to your passion. Now you mentioned to Sweeney some bad decisions. I'm not going to ask you to go into detail, but was it things that formed in you from a young age or just kind of impulse things? I mean, you you know, was it something that you kind of felt like you maybe had a predisposition to, or how, how do you feel like, you let those things shape you and, and how have you become stronger, maybe either from them or since then? I, I never believe, you know, a lot of people think that I'm probably a, a jerk uh, for saying this, but I hold myself to the same. I don't believe in excuses. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of explanations for things, but I don't think there's ever an excuse. We, we always know what is right and wrong for the most part. Um, you know, when it comes to the things that really matter. So I just think that, you know, through those decisions, and I'm an open book, you know, whether it was bouncing a week after I had signed with the Yankees or it was drinking and staying out all night and sleeping through a couple games, the first camp that I even had. Mm-hmm. I think with each of those, it, you know, you talk about my upbringing with my stepfather and, you know, his drug abuse. Everything in my life has been very full circle in terms of I can look at it and explain exactly why or have a good foundation of understanding of why I am who I am. And, you know, sometimes it's not always stopping something. It's also learning how to live with it and make the adjustments that you need to make. Cause we all have that, that unique perspective and unique wording, whatever it might be that, that creates our own little path in life that we all, that we all live. So you go through kind of the system and you get out of the 40 man, all that stuff. Battle injuries, uh, kind of a big part of your minor league time, but you get non-tendered after 2014 and the Yankees work out a better deal for you based on getting you up at a certain time and, and opt-outs and all that. What was that process like? And I mean, was there a time where you thought you really could end up somewhere else making your big league debut other than in a Yankees uniform? No, I don't think at that point it was. I, I you know, I think there was probably doubt in my head of whether I was ever going to be able to, you know, get back on the field, um, Dr. Andrews had told me late November that, you know, they had done everything they could do. And it was my second knee surgery. Um, and that I was basically never going to play a game again in my life. And I think that was a huge stepping stone to me because I, I think there's a time in my life that I realized the power of words and, and the impact they have on your life from a day-to-day decision base. 
And, you know, he showed me that with the right mentality, everything truly is impossible because six months later, after being told by the stop, the top sports surgeon in the world that you're not going to play again. There I was starting in center field. So I think it was just a big moment in my life, you know, through the years of being able to keep standing back up. Um, you know, I was, I didn't grow up a Yankee fan. I drew, I, I really grew to really appreciate what wearing the pinstripe means. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's maturity or experience, whatever it might be, it's definitely different than any other uh, major league team that I've been a part of. Um, and to be around the caliber of guys, you know, you just can't put a value on that when it comes to life. What was your call-up story? You know, guys have, oh, I called my family, I called my wife, I called my girlfriend, I called my dog, whatever. Uh, who did you Who did you call? What was it like? Who got you? brought you into the office or were you on the bus? Or how did that come to be? No, I was actually feeding my son. Um, Kaizen, they right? They had just gotten in a... Yeah, Kaisen. They had just uh, got into town. My ex-wife and him had just gotten into town a day before that. Um, and I was feeding I was feeding him, just hanging out at the house, Brian Mitchell and a couple other guys. And I heard something about Jacoby, and it really didn't register my mind. I'm a non-roster guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't even have my phone. And uh, Dave Miley ended up calling another player that I lived with. And they was like, hey, absolutely call me. And even at that point, it didn't register in my mind. But you know, those, those are moments that that you never really forget in life. And, you know, I'm very thankful that I was holding my son. I think it was, uh, you know, just in my own life experience, I, I think that was and means a lot to me and have being able to have him there. And it, it, it was something that I didn't expect. And when he told me, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, right. Really funny, Dave. And he's like, no, <laughs> I'm not playing with you. So, um, you know, maybe not as event for another, but I found out at 11:30 and had to have my bags packed and ready to head to DC at six o'clock the next morning, and then got a car service for my ex and my son to be in DC. Wow! So it was a whirlwind. It was awesome. Um, you know, it went really fast and got to the field extremely early with good old jitters and <laughs> got a good cup of Joe and went and talked to Joe. So there you go. It was, uh, it was definitely an experience. Yeah. What, what was your welcome to the MLB moment or MLB moment? Cause uh, a lot of guys say it's, you know, facing a big starting pitcher like Max Scherzer or something like that. Where, where was that first time where you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm in the big leagues. Honestly, just because of, um, you know, my belief and my perspective on our soldiers and, you know, how we should support them regardless of, you know, our stance on war or wherever the topic might be, I'm, I'm very firm believer we should support our troops. And, and I don't think they deserve, you know, all armed forces, a home or abroad deserve way more credit and, uh, way big, bigger of a reward in terms of a paycheck. Um, right. so Memorial Day was big for me to be able to hit my first home run off Greg Holland um, on Memorial Day was a really awesome experience to me. And one of the first times it was like, man, this is this is awesome. So your homer in Tampa came against Brad Boxberger. Uh, brief aside, I think he should be the spokesman for Wendy's, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, was that probably your most memorable moment? And if so... What would it have been like if you knew at that time that that would kind of be your peak? How would you have felt differently about it? You know, I think, uh, you know, and not to change or take it out of context or anything like that, but I just, you know, one of the things that I was very um, 
you know, very content with was the fact that I was retiring, but it wasn't because I was done with the game of baseball. It was that I had really believed in taking another path and using baseball as a vessel mm-hmm. to allow the impact of as many lives as possible. So I don't think I'm anywhere close to the top. Um, I like that. I think I like that, that every day I will keep, I will keep growing and, um, I don't know if I'll ever reach my top, but I will always be in pursuit of it. So, the next year, you kind of moved on from the Yankees. You did White Sox, San Fran, Oakland, a little bit of time in indie ball. What was your post-Yankees experience like? I mean, were there ups and downs? Was it a, a time of personal peace? Did you find yourself? I mean, where did where were you as a human being as your career was kind of hanging in the balance? Uh, very happy, very content. I uh, knew that I would have to go overseas in order to keep playing. And I wasn't willing to take more time away from my son. And it was something that I had known that I, I had, without a doubt, wanted to fly as soon as I was done. And I wanted to do it in a way to earn money for nonprofits and eventually do some version of flying and climbing and running to eventually open a orphanage and uh, community center in a, a country somewhere. So um, it, it wasn't that. You know, I, I felt like I had ever reached my peak. It was that I felt like there was something bigger with a bigger purpose um, surrounding baseball as a vessel. Now, you played with some veterans who were kind of in the tail end of their careers in those minor league stops. I think uh, Nick Swisher might have been one of them late and, you know, Chris Parmley, a couple other guys. What What were their mentalities like and what did you learn from some of the veteran guys who'd been around the block? Or were you just kind of you know, observing and not really necessarily learning as much from guys that had been there? No, I think I had the incredible opportunity, especially in 2015, whether it was, um, you know, talking with Carlos Beltran and, you know, Carlos and Alex are two of the highest baseball IQ players I've been around and just their veteran savvy Mm -hmm. um, was incredible you know the year before that in 2014 i was able to be locker mates with jeter and um got to know mariana pretty well on a couple missions trips and even pet it um a good bit but you know i think there was more moments than i could even uh list or talk about in terms of just being able to grow in life and grow as a player by the players and caliber of players i was able to be around on a daily basis how, how much do you keep up with the game now, now that you're out of it? And who do you still kind of follow as far as former teammates or friends in the game? Man, I, I talked to a lot of guys in the game, and I can't say that this year so far I've had any conversations about uh, baseball whatsoever. And if so, they've been very brief. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, when I talk to guys, I know what it's like to be around it on a daily basis, and that's not sometimes what we want to talk. But you know, obviously pushing through adversity and, and trials and the surgeries that I had to go through, I try to be there on a mental side of the game for the guys that I really care about and guys that uh, I believe are truly good people. Take us through the surgeries. I wanted to actually ask you about that. There were some uh, shoulders and there were some knees and just all kinds of different things. You know, what were what were the toughest ones to come back from? Because, uh, you know, I've heard shoulder obviously for pitchers is really bad, but you know, it's, it's not easy for anyone. And, and your knees were kind of the thing that, you know, Dr. Andrews said might end your career. So, I mean, what was the frustration level and pain level for going through all those? Uh, my last surgery was definitely the worst. Um, you know, I had the surgery ended up being um, not botched, but it ended up not working at all and ended up making the situation worse than it even mm, was when I good. first started. But 
Um, you know, I think my second shoulder surgery was a lot to come by. You know, I had just gone through six straight months of rehab of every day and um, basically second pitch of season had had popped my shoulder again. So, um, you know, I think each surgery had its own challenges, but I think my second shoulder surgery and my second knee surgery was really ones that uh, pushed me to my uh, – what I thought were my limits and then was able to expand past that. That's got to be a good feeling, though, to, to be able to withstand that and then go above. Um, I want to ask you about your son, Kyson. I believe he's, what, is he going to be five this year? He's four. Yeah, he just turned four okay. uh, February 21st. Oh, a day before my birthday. So uh, we've got birthday brothers here. Hey. What, um, what kind of effect has he had on your life? I have a little girl who's almost two, and so I know for a fact that it's uh, it's quite an influence. It's a life changing thing, and uh, you know, I had mine while I was just writing. Yours, your son came while you were still in the thick of playing ball, and and I'm sure there's been some challenges in in addition to all that. But what kind of role has he had in your life, and and how has he affected you? I I truly believe he's one of the biggest influences of why I was even able to keep playing after my knee surgery and. You know, it, it came with the realization, um, you know, around that 24, 25 year old age that, you know, I had been a negative influence on the world for a very long time. And it was time that I needed to uh, not be that explanation of, you know, my upbringing, that I needed to be responsible for ultimately my son's upbringing uh, and being the best figure I can possibly be and living that life as an example and not just talking, but actually living the uh, talk that I talked. No, I like that a lot. I think that's that's a great thing that someone so small can be such a big effect in our lives, I think, is is awesome. Now, to, to change gears just a little bit, from baseball to flying, I have to believe that's a very, very unusual career path. And how, how like, where did your interest in flying begin? I mean, was it as someone who was young, as someone who was a grown man? You know, where, where did that first seed get planted in your brain that you thought flying might be kind of cool? Top Gun. Yeah, I heard you say that to I heard you say that to Sweeney, and I actually saw a gift the other day. It was the Top Gun High Five. I think it's the uh, isn't it up top and then down low, kind of all in one motion. So uh, I kind of thought of yeah. that when I when I saw that. But that that's what set you on that path. So did you see it as a kid or you know young adult or when did when did that start? Yeah, I saw it as uh, you know an early teen. Uh, I might even been a little younger than that, and I fell in love with the idea of flying. And it's just something that I've always been kind of drawn to. Um, I didn't know really what um, way I wanted to fly as a professional pilot, and I haven't really figured that out yet either. I know that I eventually want to be obviously flying, and you know who knows maybe I fly around the world in order to open an orphanage or mm-hmm. do things of that nature. So. Um, you know, the path, I know what I'm going to do in terms of flying, but that the, you know, the final path that I take, um, is still to be determined. So I know you have two foundations. Can you tell us about each of them and what makes them different? Yeah, I actually have three foundations. Oh, it's three now. Okay. um, Okay. Yeah. So I have one that was founded in 2014 with John Ryan Murphy and Catherine Lieber and it's called I am more and it's I am more.us. And it's a foundation based around kids with special opportunities and illnesses to, uh, to show them, be, you know, become a part of their lives with our parachutes and cities and show them that, you know, just because we're in a certain situation doesn't mean it defines who we are. So, um, you know, really trying to be that hope and inspiration to show them that they can overcome 
the, the battles and struggles they have on a daily basis. Um, I also have more than baseball.org mm-hmm. and I have that with three other guys that have put a lot of work in and it's a minor league nonprofit uh, with our goals of making the dreams of being a big league player as much of a reality as we possibly can and assist in every step of that and step in that process that we can, whether it's providing food or providing uh, equipment or equipment um, deals, brand sponsors, jobs in season, out of season. You know, there's a lot of areas that we can help players and, you know, by teaming up with other MLB teams and the players association. And, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there. And then my last one is we are one village.org. Um, and we're doing work in a couple of different countries. And the one that I'm focusing on right now is the DR um, and cleaning up the plastic down there mm-hmm. and creating jobs and sustainability um, and opportunities for people of the DR since it's become uh, very close to my heart in terms of players and guys that I've grown up with in the game and that I care about. Um, and I just see a huge ability to be able to impact the DR on it on an economical standpoint to a cultural standpoint and reshaping how kids and how young adults view trash and, you know, the, the ability to earn profits off that trash that they just throw out. So we're doing a lot of work down in the DR and looking for partnerships uh, with MLB and things of that nature for a couple of projects that we're working on that I'm not at liberty to build a discussion, yet, but looking really good. How can people like me or listeners get involved? Go to any of the websites. So we are one village website is being built now. So it'll be up in the next week or two. Okay. Um, I am more dot us go on there, write a note, follow us uh, on Instagram and things like that. And then more than baseball dot us get on there and, uh, or more than baseball.org and get on there and write us, uh, write us a letter, join, tell us what your thoughts are. You know, we're the biggest thing that people underplay in my opinion is the ability to connect people and have the, uh, you know, the strength in numbers by word of mouth and things of that nature. So just a few quick ones before we let you go. Uh, how do you like Twitter? Because that's how we got connected. Do you like it as a platform? Hate it? Where, where do you stand on it? I was very anti-social altogether until uh, probably a year and a half ago. And it's something that I believe there's a lot of opportunity in terms of business. And especially when it comes to minor league players uh, with the ability to earn money on the side, whether it's $20 here, or $40 there, whatever it might be. I think there's tremendous uh, potential to be able to put money in the pockets of players um, without taking much of their time and really just being unique on how we go about raising players, whether it's events or uh, corporate sponsors, whether it's products, whether it's businesses that we create. Um, There's a lot of opportunity there. You have come out as an advocate for minor league pay being improved. And as someone who was a first-round pick, obviously you got a very nice bonus. How did you come to that realization, though, that that, that pay is not only bad but egregiously so? And what, what has that path been like you for you as you've kind of advocated that these guys need to have a, a living wage? Yeah, I mean, I think on the pay side, I think, uh, you know, anybody that can look at the paper says, um, you know, that it's ridiculous. A lot of – even fans of baseball are like, well, that's the, that's the job that you chose. And, you know, you deserve to make $6,000 a year without, and still having to pay for rent and money. And 
my, my purpose was I saw too many guys that were big league talent not be able to continue because they had a family and they weren't able to provide. And as a man, that's, you know, especially in a game that there's ego and things of that, no different than any other top field that you uh, come around the, you know, there's egos involved. And there's also the the fact that we have to provide for our family. And I, I saw so many players have to retire just because they couldn't afford bats or they couldn't afford batting gloves and cleats throughout the course of the year. So when you, when you have a minor league player, that's a top 1% of his field and he's making $6,500 for the entire year at the lower levels, um, you know, it's hard for them to be the best baseball players they can be. You were the number 63 prospect on Baseball America's list before 2013. As a player, is that something guys are typically aware of, or are you just kind of keeping on, keeping on as, uh, you know, you got to be who you are rather than realizing where you stand as far as your peers? I think it just depends on the player. Uh, Everybody kind of has their own stance on it. Um, I wasn't a big stats guy or in terms of uh, prospects and things like that. I think those are just opinions and opinions only go so far and you still have to produce and be able to make it, uh, you know, work. So to end, this will be kind of like a lightning round, but we'll, we'll just kind of go through some names of guys that you played with. And if you could just give me your thoughts on them just briefly, there's some guys who with some twins ties, some guys you've had on this show and some guys who've had some very unique life experiences. Are you ready? Yes, sir. John Ryan Murphy, who briefly caught for the Twins. Oh, man. One of my best friends in life. Uh, You know, what you see is what you get, and I have a lot of respect for him that he uh, never strays away from who John Ryan Murphy is and uh, has a lot of ambitions, and I've watched him grow not only as a person but as a brother and as a player. Now, I don't know if you played with this guy, but you guys were on the same roster the same year. Nick Turley. I know Nick Turley very well. Um, he can really spin know, it. He's a good pitcher. Yeah, I haven't spoken to him in a long time. I know he, uh, on the friend side of it, uh, an incredible father. Uh, nice. Very devoted husband and uh, had a lot of uh, respect for his character off the field and um, was a good friend of mine and came from a military background as well. A young Jose Quintana. I actually don't know Jose that well. Um, so that one I won't be able to give you much on. Well, if you guys cross paths, it was very briefly in the lower level. So it, it's been a while. Um, Tyler Austin. Yeah. Uh, one of my best friends as well. Um, you know, especially some of the trials he's faced with testicular cancer and be able to stand up and not be as shy and, you know, be an advocate for that. I have a lot of respect for him there and, um, he's just a good friend of mine. He's a very hard worker. One of the hardest working guys that I know. I was actually his, uh, his workout partner this off season. And it's kind of a it beast. was uh, good to see him grow and where he's headed. A young Gary Sanchez. Uh, all the potential in the world. Uh, one of the, probably the best, uh, skills wise in the game. Jake cave. Hard, hard-nosed player. He really played hard. Um, you know, we didn't have an extensive background of playing together, but you always knew what you were going to get, and he was, uh, he was always a gamer. He always wanted to be on the field and do whatever he needed to do to be there. A Midwest Swing podcast alumnus, and tell me if, if you didn't play with him, but it, Lane Adams. Oh, man, OKC okay, boy. Yeah, he, he's, he's Scranton-Wilkes-Barre. Yeah, I can jump out of there. 
talk about just a physically gifted freak. The guy could jump out of a roof, uh, really down to earth. I never heard one guy uh, ever have anything bad to say about him. He was a great clubhouse guy and got along with people very well. He was on our show about a month ago. Great guy. So we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, Chris Parmalee, who played for the Twins for quite a while. Yeah, I had, uh, I think it was probably in 2015 or 2016. I got to know Chris pretty well. Cali boy. Um, Quiet and kind of intense, right? Yeah, quiet, but, uh, you know, when it came to competing, he was, uh, he wanted to win more than anybody out there. So, uh, another really class character, honestly. Did you play with Nick Swisher in the minors one year? I love Nick Swisher. <laughs> I still like him to this I day. Do, I, I do too. talk to him. Um, it's not popular around here to say you like Nick Swisher, but I, I like Nick Swisher. Well, I like him and I have a lot <laughs> of respect for him as a man and, uh, you know, as a teammate, and now seeing what he's doing now, he's right where he needs to be with his uh, character that he has. Just people love him. Guys love him. Teams love him. His teammates love him. Guys he plays against have a lot of respect for him. So I have nothing but good things to say about Swish. All right. Two more guys. Bruce Maxwell. I, uh, you know, I had experience in 2018 of being his teammate and, uh, you know, met him. Uh, I don't really keep up with this. So I actually met him before I knew of any of the uh, troubles. And I think there was a lot of uh, things that happened there that the public doesn't quite understand. But I think that for the most part, he's a, uh, you know, a really good individual that maybe just have made uh, poor timing decisions and was in the wrong place at the right time and a combination of both. Yeah, it feels like his heart's in the right place, but he, he just screwed up once. But um, last one. Uh, with your time in Sugarland, which I understand was very brief, but Derek Norris. I like Derek very well. He was uh, kind of a dry sense of humor, but you knew that when he talked, you wanted to listen. Somebody that you had a lot of respect for with his uh, veteran status and guy that I uh, like to have a good time and give people a hard time as well. All right, Tate. Thank you so much for your time, Slade. Get get on that plane. Have a good night flight. Thank you so much, though. Uh, people can follow you at Heath. Make sure I say it right. Heathcott underscore Slade, and uh, tweet back and forth with you. I've had a lot of fun doing it. People can too. So again, thank you so much for your time for Slade Heathcott for producer Justin across the table. This is Brandon Warren saying thank you so much for listening to Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. 